following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! I remember originally when we were starting the programs, I reached out to a mentor and I was like, listen, this is what I want to do. And he was like, this is crazy. Like you should focus on your schoolwork. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, like this was a side thing. And he was like, yeah, you know, Jay-Z has a famous quote where he says like, you know, you can't help the poor if you're one of them. And here I was at the time starting a nonprofit with like very little income, very little connections. But in that moment felt like I had been at Cornell now and I didn't have much, right. but I had so much more than the kids I was growing up with. And I had this responsibility to sort of like pay it forward. Welcome to the Forbes Under 30 Podcast. I'm Steve Goldblum, your host. On this show, we speak with young entrepreneurs and innovators. Today, we have Kareem Abulnaga on the show. He's the CEO and founder of Practice Makes Perfect, a high-quality academic summer program offered to students in high-need communities. He's also a 2015 Forbes Under 30 listee. Kareem, thank you for, for doing this. He's on Skype right now. No, man. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to join the podcast series. How old are you right now? 25. 25, and you're already a veteran of your business because you started your business seven years ago. Is that right? Yeah, crazy to imagine and, and think about that. <laughs> Time Eight, flies. 18 years old. I don't even want to tell you what I was doing at 18 years old, but I certainly wasn't getting my own business off the ground. <laughs> I was somewhere in Nova Scotia. Um, we don't need to get into that. Where, where, where were you when you started the program? And uh, just give us a little background of, on what led up to it. Sure. So, I mean, I never imagined that I'd be starting a business, uh, especially at that age. Um, but as a sophomore at Cornell, I came up with this idea after learning about the inequalities in education after my f second semester of my freshman year. And what originally started is just this like imaginary concept of a better form of summer school um, sort of led me down this path of pitching the idea to people who then started coming back and saying like, oh, Oh, how's it going? Where, where's your progress? And I think that form of social accountability started to push mm -hmm. me to think about it a little bit more. And what was originally just like a pilot program, we said, okay, well, let's see if this idea could actually work. Um, snowballed into an organization, and then the organization became a 501c3 nonprofit. And then I graduated college in 2013, and after two years, raised $2.5 million in philanthropy and realized there's no way to solve the problem we were trying to solve philanthropically, um, and flipped and became a for-profit benefit corporation. And now that's been almost like two years ago. So um, it's definitely been a journey, but I always tell people the work is very personal for me. Um, when I learned about the achievement gap and the inequality, the numbers weren't just numbers. They were real people. I was raised by a single mother on government aid, went to some of New York City's most struggling public schools, um, and fortunately had a series of nonprofits and mentors who kind of changed my life trajectory. But I know that wasn't the case for some of the kids I was growing up with. Well, one of the things you talk about um, growing up in Queens uh, and going to the schools that you did 
and living in the circumstances that you, that you did was that people don't assume much that you're going to go to school, that you're going to go to college, and that you're going to have opportunities. In fact, it's the opposite. So what? Where? Yeah. When did you have the epiphany that you had um, that you were going to be empowered to write a different narrative that seemed to be that wasn't written for you? Well, I mean, I only know this in hindsight. When you're going through the system and they're asking you questions like to raise your hand if you're going to college, you're not sitting there thinking that people are doubting your ability to do something with your life. Um, it's not, an, it wasn't for me at least, it wasn't until after I got out of college and I started to analyze my own upbringing and the environment that I had grown up in and the expectations um, that were sort of placed upon me and my friends mm-hmm. that I realized that they weren't expecting much. You know, it was my freshman year of college when I learned that 11% of first-generation college kids were uh, expected to graduate within six years. But before that, like, I didn't think anything of it. Um, And so it wasn't until after the fact, and then it it just forced me to think differently about the way we sort of grew up and sort of the expectations that people put upon us. Were you always a good student? I wish I could say that I was. (laughs) I mean, in elementary school, I didn't read my first book until fourth grade, and I didn't read my second one until maybe my sophomore or junior year of high school. Uh, My first like full chapter book. And now uh, you're you're writing books. You're writing multiple books a year. What would you tell your yourself now? (laughs) You what would your the 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 person that you are today at twenty five that has accomplished so much go back and tell the fourth grader reading his first book that will be the last book he reads for another six years. What would you tell him? Uh, I mean, I can. I, I struggled with reading as a kid, and I didn't understand why. I, yeah. I had a really hard time with reading comprehension, and I didn't understand that I was struggling with reading comprehension. And the only way to become a better reader is to read longer um, and to continue to read. And so I remember just sitting there, and, and I would read books before that. And by the time I'd get through the page or the second page I was reading, I would have zoned out like three or four times. Right. And I think I, I wish someone was there to say, that's okay. Um, it's part of building your reading endurance and your reading stamina. Um, and I didn't grow up in an environment where reading was normal and like you're supposed to be reading and we had all these books or anything right. like that around us. And so I wish I had been pushed a little bit earlier to do that and to concentrate and to continue practicing and building up that endurance. Um, and so I, I would tell myself that in fourth grade now, like keep trying. It's okay to space out and zone out. It's just like a matter of time before you get better and better at being able to focus on what you're reading. And were you embarrassed at that age? Was it a, a thing uh, where you wanted to push it aside? I don't think I was embarrassed because no one else around me was reading. Right, right. I think I would have been more ashamed <laughs> to have like finished multiple books at that age. That's it. Yeah, I'm right. For that. Right. I was yeah. embarrassed. I had trouble with reading comprehension at that age too, and I was embarrassed because my sisters were like straight A students. So it was yeah. very. It was. It was really pronounced wasn't the case in my household like um compared to my older brother even though i wasn't great i was a little bit better and yeah. I, I would always get the teachers that he had the year before and he was a class like clown and always created yeah. problems and so i was like the angel child following that no matter <laughs> what i did well what was your experience with summer school growing up i mean i remember i did summer school twice um, once I think it was after first grade and it was mainly because my parents had nothing else for me to do. And I guess they offered it. And so they said like, go to this. And then the second time again was also an elementary school. Um, English wasn't my native language. So even though I was born in the United States, my parents only spoke Arabic at home to us right. as kids. 
And so I was an ESL student um, up until like second or third grade. And I think the, the language barriers like wound up sending us to summer school. I didn't have a particularly negative experience outside of the one time that I remember my mother bought me some new like swimming trunks and they were taking us out to the sprinklers and I forgot my brand new swimming trunks in the bathroom stall and going home, it wasn't fun that day, um, realizing that I lost those. But all of my friends like would say as we got older and older that like the one thing they didn't want to do is go to summer school. Um, and I realized as I was growing up that like summer school wasn't the place that you wanted to be sent to. It's punishment. And so yeah, I, I had the same association as punishment. Exactly. Um, it was, and, and I think for a large amount of time, like that was the rationale behind it. I remember speaking to one of the former chancellors of the New York City public school system, Harold Levy. He actually ran the nation's largest summer school program from 2001 to 2003. The city was sending about 300,000 kids to summer school. And he's like, well, at the time, the mayors across the U.S. were trying to end social promotion. So this idea of if you're 10 years old, you should be in fourth grade. If you're 11, you should be in fifth. And so we're going right. to promote you no matter what. And so he was like, well, what do we do if you're going to end social promotion? And he sort of came up with summer school as a way to create a safety net, but turned out to be a lot more negative. Um, the framing to the mayor was, listen, you know what we're going to do for the kids who aren't on grade level? We're going right. to send them to school over the summer. We're going to make them so miserable that they're going to work harder the following school year so they don't have to go back again. Right. And- that was the Yeah, that's right. That, that seems like the approach they took. Which- exactly what you should be doing with kids who, don't, who already don't care about school. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a um, misguided. So yeah, it was a misguided so well. policy. I mean, do you? One of the things that that uh, struck me when I was filling my brain with things that you've written and things that you've said was how set back people are uh, between the summer gaps when they're not in school. Because that you tell me, but it was something like five months that people are set back. Can you explain that? Yeah, I, I always say like five months is the number that I've used because the research shows and the, they've done studies on this where they've tested kids at the end of the school year in June and then have given them no treatment, no programming, and then tested them again in September and have found that on average they're forgetting about three months of what they learned in math and reading from the school year. Right. And then there have been multiple studies that say that teachers spend on average the first four to six weeks reteaching old material. and. God knows, like the what you forgot the previous school year is actually the thing that you're reviewing, and most of the time it's not. And every single kid forgets a different thing. And so, if you spend two months reteaching old material or relearning new material, and then you waste three months because you forgot it over the summer, it's about five months. The school year from September to June is ten months long. And so, I always say, well, if you forget five months, it's about fifty percent of what you were taught. Assuming you got a hundred percent of the material you were supposed to learn the previous school right. year, and I wasn't an A plus student, and I don't think most people are, and so I just think it's a huge waste of time. Um, and then, then I, you know, there's a lot of studies out there that say like, you know, most inner city eighth graders only have a fourth grade reading level, and for a really long time I was frustrated by this and didn't understand why it was. Um, and then you learn about the inequality over the summer, and it starts to make sense because theoretically kids have only been in school for half the amount of time. And we'll be right back after this quick break. The Forbes Under 30 podcast is brought to you by LifeLock. Is your personal info for sale on the dark web? Monitoring your credit can't show you, but LifeLock sees a wide range of threats to your identity. If something happens, U.S.-based specialists can work to fix it. Go to LifeLock.com, use the promo code Forbes, and save 10%. 
Well, tell me a little bit about your road to Cornell and what that experience was like coming from the school systems that you'd come from, both from when you found out you were accepted and to when you when you showed up. Oh, well, I mean, it wasn't straight, it wasn't linear, and it wasn't straightforward. Um, so I finished high school, and actually, I had an incentive program that this billionaire hedge fund manager funded that paid kids to pass advanced placement courses. Um, so before the incentive program started, I took my first AP class, and it was my sophomore year of high school, AP European history. I got 90s and 95s in the class all year long, and then I got a one out of five on the exam at the end of the year. And so technically, I failed the exam. And I remember thinking at the time, like, College Board made a, must have made a mistake. Um, and now I know that at College Board definitely did not make a mistake, that the preparation just wasn't as rigorous as it needed to be for me to right. have been at a place where I would have been able to pass. Um, but the program then started my junior year, and it paid kids $500 if they got a three and up to $1,000 if they got a five. I mean, it did that for me my junior and senior year. So um, different level of incentives. They brought the best professors in the U.S. to teach different subjects, and I passed five AP exams by the time I graduate. Um, I score a 1770 out of 2,400 on my SATs. It put me in the 95th percentile mm. in my high school, but in the 70th percentile nationwide. Right. Um, no one in my family had gone to college before, and so when it came time to apply, I applied to MIT because I saw it on Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? I thought Harvard's the one in, in Goodwill Hunting. No, yeah, MIT, and then okay. I did. Um, Baruch was a local business school, and um, I didn't get into MIT, and rightfully so. The SAT scores didn't line up. I didn't have a compelling personal story. I didn't really have that much mentorship in applying for the colleges I was applying to. Um, but I wound up going to Baruch. I got a 4.0 my first semester. They say that SAT is supposed to be indicative of how you're going to do your first year of college, um, and in this case, it wasn't. Um, and so I, I then had a couple of like um, advisors and people sort of say, like, listen, you should consider transferring. Um, and I was working at an aquatic center at the time and my boss knew a Cornell alum and she was like, listen, I'll give you the weekend off if you go up and visit. And once you get rejected from one top school, like I did with MIT, you're not really thinking about applying to another one. Yeah. Um, but when I went up there and I met some of the kids, the subject of AP scores came up and kids were sharing openly about how they got a two on this AP or a one on that AP and the same APs that I had gotten threes or fours on. And for the first time in my life in that moment, I felt like I was just as smart, if not smarter than these kids. Um, when I didn't get into MIT, I felt like I was less than. Right. Um, and so I asked them which school I should apply to within Cornell. I was interested in studying business. And they told me about the agriculture and life sciences program, the applied economics and management program there. And I remember my knee-jerk reaction was, I don't want to be a farmer. Like, why would I apply there? Yeah. And then they were like, well, there's the hotel school. And those kids there are pretty cool. And so I applied to the hotel school. The school also looked at your work experience, um, which was a huge like plus on my side because I grew up lower income. I had a ton of like odd jobs as a kid um, and it worked in my advantage and I remember getting the letter and just feeling as if this like whole life that I was now living was going to change but also how incredibly surreal it was um, my family didn't react to it in the same way I can tell you my mom like didn't understand the difference between the schools and she was like why are you going to a school that's further upstate and I think this is an issue that a lot of like low-income kids deal right. with um, separation was like it's a separation anxiety, but you're also a contributor to the household. And by going further away, it's going to be a lot harder to do that. And her re reaction was, I remember this like word for word. She was like, Kareem, like you're doing this so just so you can run away from your problems. Oh, yeah. Right. Just a, little, and, just a little guilt. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, in hindsight, some of it was true. You know, there were six of us in a two bedroom household. My youngest like brother at the time was three. My oldest brother was just like starting at a community college and but was definitely like on track already to dropping out. The environment wasn't conducive to doing the things I wanted to do. And I was working 40 hours a week to help like pay the rent and support the household and cover my own expenses. And so getting an opportunity to go to Cornell on a full ride just would have changed everything. And at least giving me the space to be able to think. And right. I had people in my life at the time who said, listen, like you need to go and do this and invest in yourself um, and come back later and you're going to be able to make a bigger impact than if you stick around and not take advantage of the opportunities that a university like Cornell could afford you. Um, and boy, were they right. Well, you said, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up uh, the idea that you were turning your back on your problems because you, very soon after that, you started Practice Makes Perfect. Yeah, and I think some of it was this like sense of responsibility. I remember originally when we were starting the programs, I reached out to a mentor and I was like, listen, this is what I want to do. And he was like, this is crazy. Like, you should focus on your schoolwork. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, like, this was a side thing. And he was like, yeah, you know, Jay-Z, says, has, a fa- Jay-Z has a famous quote um, where he says, like, you know, you can't help the poor if you're one of them. And he had a mentor before who was like, listen, you can't write a check if you haven't made one. And here I was at the time starting a nonprofit with like very little income, very little connections. But in that moment felt like I had been at Cornell now and I didn't have much, but I had so much more than the kids I was growing up with. And I had this responsibility to sort of like pay it forward. Um, Well, what is is your philosophy? I mean, how do you think schools and lower-income communities can empower more students to have academic success and confidence and view college as as an expectation uh, rather than a a far-off possibility? I think about it from a perspective of like providing role models. You know, I didn't build a relationship with a college-age student until my freshman year of college. Um, whereas in some of my friends' households, when I got to college, like their parents had gone to college, their friends' parents had gone to college. Like that was sort of the norm. This was, it was what was expected of them. Um, we're not showered in the same way when you're growing up in a low income neighborhood with people all around you who've gone to college and have made that the expectation. Um, and I think we need to do a better job at connecting the bridges. You know, I met with the mayor of Providence a couple of years ago and we were talking about the inequality that they have there over the summer. There are 25,000 students in their public public school system, but there are 90,000 college kids in their university system. How could you have such a huge achievement gap and a disparity in your school system with almost four times the number of college kids there? Um, And I think the same is true in New York. I don't know what the numbers are at scale, um, but there's millions of kids here in our university system that are just not being like put into our public schools at the elementary and middle school level um, and even the high school level in some of our lower income schools. So I think we need to do a better job of facilitating those bridges and providing the role models for our kids to look up to and aspire to be like. Well, speaking of role models, when we were talking about the um, the stereotype of summer school and that it was people had to ride it out or that it was a form of punishment, you know the kids didn't want to be there. But sometimes the same is true for the teachers. The teachers didn't necessarily want to be there. So how do you rework that with your program and and empower the students so that they're collaborating with people where everybody's on the same page 
I mean, the whole experience is different. Our model is different. But I also think summer school and education has a bit of a branding issue in our lower-income neighborhoods. Kids just don't think school is cool. Um, so if you look at our branding, it's modeled off of, like, Nike and Jordan and Gucci and Prada. And from the very beginning, kids are getting a folder with our branding. And it, there's letters in there that say, congratulations. You've been enrolled in the Practice Makes Perfect Summer program. Then we use a near-peer learning model. So I, I remember as a kid, I didn't do bad things because I wanted to be a bad kid. I did bad things because that's what the older kids were doing, and that's what was cool. And I looked at our suburban and our more affluent neighborhoods, and I was like, wow, it was cool to be the captain of the debate team or the editor of the yearbook. Those things weren't cool in my neighborhood. Um, but if the older kids did them, then we would do them as younger kids. And so we recruit higher-achieving kids who live in the same neighborhoods, and we give them a summer job so they're paid, and they act as mentors in our programs. And then I remember thinking to myself that our teachers are tired and they're burnt out. Um, but what if we use college students who are aspiring teachers to lead instruction, who can come in with a new boost of like energy? Um, and so that's what we started doing. We started recruiting college students from all across the United States um, to give them a realistic job preview and allow them to see whether or not this experience is for them. Um, and they come in with a wave of energy. And then we solicit the teachers as mentors to the college students. So instead of being in front of the classroom all summer, burning yourself out with the kids who don't want to be there, you're instead mentoring a kid with a lot of energy who wants to change a kid's life and really believes in their potential. And it gives you a renewed sense of energy and hope. And so you don't feel like you're just there babysitting anymore. Um, and just by doing that, we've created this like, model where everyone is a participant but also a beneficiary and in turn everyone is winning what happens to the the teachers do they come back the next year do they go on to teach in um underserved communities the majority of our teachers wind up going into teaching um i don't know what the exact percentage is that wind up going into low-income schools versus affluent schools i think the experience is meant to be a realistic job preview and we say that from the very beginning um, we want you to see this for what it is there's no promises and i think so much of our job is also weeding people out who had great intentions and thought this was the space for them and we've sort of moved them out and saying you know we think you can still be a great educator but you're probably not well suited for the inner city and then there's others who may have had some reservations coming into it they were a little bit doubtful they maybe never thought that they could teach in the inner city or had perceptions about what the community was like or what the kids were like um, and have fallen in love with the ability to be in the communities that they're in seeing that they're kids and like kids are normal kids are kids in everywhere that you sort of go um, and the communities are a lot more inviting and welcoming than a lot of people sort of make them out to be. And it's changed their perspective about where they can teach. Um, so we've trained over 300 aspiring teachers so far. Um, I'd say the greater majority of them will be in our school system in the next two to three years. Um, but every single year we have about 20% of our kids, our college kids who are mm -hmm. being trained and they wind up teaching in our schools after. Um, and they're working in some of New York City's most disadvantaged schools. Well, much has been said about, you know, when you look at the changing job market, about how we need to become more lifelong learners. You've said that getting a college education is a 20-year investment. What, what do you mean by that? This mindset of, like, you should be going to college is something that should be instilled in you from a really early age. Um, two or three years old. When you're growing up in poverty and you're growing up lower income, a lot of your thinking is a lot more short term. 
right? You're worried about how you're going to pay the rent that day or that month. You're worried about how you're going to put food on the table that day. And a lot of your decision-making winds up being focused on these shorter-term things because if you think too long-term, you won't be able to get through the short-term challenges that you're seeing day-to-day. But instead, what we sort of need is this balance when you're growing up lower income to be able to see the bigger picture and see what your life could potentially look like if you lived 40 or 50 years. Um, I'm going back now for my master's degree part-time, knowing that if I lived five years, it's probably a waste of money. Um, But odds are, you know, in today's day and age, people are living to an average age of 80, and it helps to have that additional education. And we'll be right back after this quick break. What happens if someone gets their hands on your social security number? An identity thief can commit all sorts of identity fraud with your personal information. They can open bank accounts, receive medical care in your name, file phony tax returns and steal your refund, and even commit crimes in your name. Often it's difficult to track down these crimes, and it can take years to clear up. One in four people have experienced identity theft, and if you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways you may not detect. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats. If they detect your information being used, they'll send you an alert. If there's a problem, U.S.-based restoration specialists will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. Go to LifeLock.com com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use the promo code FORBES. That's FORBES for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. Hey, it's Jay Moore, and it is time, finally, for America's Lakers podcast. That's right, I'm going to be hosting America's Lakers podcast. My man, Aaron Larsoul, an analytical genius, he's going to bring to the table what I can't every Wednesday. America's Lakers podcast exclusively at podcastone.com, the podcastone.com app, which I highly recommend. You can rate and review this podcast on all Apple products. And guess what we're not going to do? We're not going to bathe in the gossip and the gratuitous negativity that's been swallowing Los Angeles whole lately. Who did what? Who snitched? Who said what? How about truth? How about facts? How about statistics? How about rotations? What's Luke Walton thinking? Who's underperforming? Who's overachieving? Who's rewarded? Who's coming? Who's going? And what are we going to do with all that delightful, delicious cap space? America's Lakers podcast with me, Jay Moore, and my man, my brother, Aaron Larsoul. Every Wednesday, podcastone.com. Commercial real estate challenges? For 160 years, companies around the world have trusted Savills for expert guidance and perfect workspace solutions. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. And are you hoping that your work moves the dial or has it already on on policy? I mean, fingers crossed. I'm trying to push a reporting bill now in the New York City Council. Um, I feel like one of the biggest issues with summer school and the challenges that they saw was that people just like gave up on it after Mm -hmm. instead of thinking like, what if we redesign this model? They saw that 60% of the kids were showing up, right, which wasn't a pretty it was a pretty bad like return on investment. You know, if you're spending $2,000 or $1,500 to send a kid to summer school and then they're not even showing up um, half the time. So what most administrations just sort of said after that was, well, kids don't want to come, so we're not going to fund this anymore instead of thinking, well, what's wrong with the design? And like, how do we redesign this? And so our work has sort of been this like pilot and experiment and showing that there are designs out there that could work over the summer. And 
we can scale these solutions to serve more kids. Um, and now I'm sort of using what we've sort of learned, um, plus a lot of the data and the fact that things aren't really changing, to hopefully get schools to educate the public mm-hmm. on what they're doing. Well, tell me, you graduated 2014, 2015? 2013 from college. 2013, and there were opportunities for you to go work on Wall Street. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I did my internship my sophomore year at Goldman Sachs, and then my junior year at BlackRock, and then got a full-time offer in the fixed income portfolio management group. And how difficult was it for you to turn your back on that? I think it was harder because of the mentors and the nonprofits I participated in. I'm like, don't get me like I I enjoyed both the work environments. I worked with a lot of like incredibly smart people, but I sat there the entire time my my junior year summer at BlackRock, just thinking about the opportunity to change education and the impact the work that I could do would have. And so it wasn't so much that I didn't enjoy what I was doing; it was just more so I really wanted to do this other thing. And I realized that if I didn't, or at least thought at the time that if I didn't make this the commitment to doing it now, then I probably never would make that commitment. Right. And I started to look at the education, like reform landscape, and saw that I was different, right? For the first time in a lot of the readings and in the research, um, here was someone and myself who had gone through the system and seen the inequality firsthand and had been blessed with the elite education to be able to articulate a lot of the systemic issues that people on the other side of the education system just sort of who are creating policies have but don't necessarily see. Well, you've certainly uh, made quite a footprint that I think they'd be really proud of. I mean, you've said that you encourage people to contribute locally rather than to uh, aspire to any kind of like global competitiveness. You say local um, contributions make more of an impact. So do you want to just flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah, it's two-pronged for me. One is um, I saw a lot of kids in my neighborhood who I met in college go through programs like Prep for Prep mm-hmm. or ABC or Oliver Scholars, and I think those programs are great. But what they those programs sort of do is they pull your higher-achieving, low-income kids out of the, the neighborhoods that they're in. And they put them on the fast track to getting into great schools, which I think is awesome. But these kids then grow up grow up being told that their neighborhood is bad, right, or their community yeah. is bad. And that's why they were pulled out of it. And so I meet a lot of them in college, and now they don't quite fit in with the elite, like, affluent kids that are they're in school with. And they don't exactly fit into the neighborhood that they grew up in. Um, and so they sort of feel like they're creating this, like, new middle ground where they're not accepted in either of those communities. And I don't think it should be that way. I don't think people's communities should make them feel as if they're ostracized or that they're, we should be telling people that their communities are bad. Um, and the second piece is we understand and know our communities better than anyone else does. Um, and to say that I know how to spend a dollar in China or in India and make better use of it than I do in my own neighborhood where there's inequality or there are problems or struggles, I think is far, like far-fetched. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're talking about real impact, you know, we know how to invest and make a difference in our neighborhoods so much more effectively than we do in other communities where we have no context. Maybe we haven't lived there before and don't really know what people need. And so the, the whole notion of, like, let's all think about fixing our own backyards, and collectively we'll be making the world a better place. Well, and speaking of the competitiveness, what was behind your decision to move from being a nonprofit to a, a B Corp? Well, I felt like there was no way to solve the problem we were trying to solve through philanthropy. And one of the studies I read was through the Stanford Social Innovation Review. They looked at, I think it was like, 
uh, several thousand nonprofits. I think it was like 200,000 nonprofits that had been started since 1971 through 2003. And after they took out universities and hospitals, they saw that only about 100 or so of those nonprofits ever scaled up to have operating budgets of over $50 million. And I saw that the problem that we were trying to solve just in New York City was about a $2 billion problem. And so I realized that we had a better likelihood of being able to like saturate the market and grow and actually solve the problem as a for-profit company than as a non-profit company, knowing all the barriers that sort of existed. In the beginning, where did the money come from? Where does it come from now? Yeah, so in the very beginning, um, I started running triathlons. I had my friends at Cornell sort of like join and create this like mini board. Um, before we converted, I'd say like we had over a thousand individual donors. Um, so a lot of it came from individuals, both through your wait. You started and, running triathlons. Yeah, I started running triathlons and asking my friends to give five, ten, and twenty dollars oh, donations okay, to help right. me hit a goal. I was gonna say, I was like, wait, how? Where's he raising the money with the triathlon? <laughs> Yeah, I started getting in yeah, great yeah. shape. In the same yeah. way someone would run a marathon right, and right. raise money for a charity, I was just doing it through triathlons. Um, and then, yeah, we had over a 1,000 individual donors, got a lot of grassroots donations, and then a lot from like higher net worth individuals who sort of believed in our mission and our vision. Right. Um, I reached out to people who had invested in me and had invested in the nonprofits I had been a part of. Um, and then we won a bunch of fellowships and business plan competitions. What we sort of realized after a couple of years is that people care about social problems, but only to the extent that they're convenient to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a lot of our school partners, the message of trying to end the summer learning loss only partially resonated. And what we started to see was that schools who were partnering with us and working with us were really doing it because they were just tired and frustrated of trying to run summer school right. um, in the midst of all the other demands that they had going on. And the analogy I sort of use is that, you know, imagine you were a teacher or you're a school principal and, you know, the last week of June, you finally have a second to breathe because you've gone through the school year and now they're asking you to plan and operate a program two weeks later. Yeah, right. And like, if you're an adult and like who's been through 10 months of like teaching and you've put everything on the line, the last thing you want to do is have another set of demands that are going to take you through the summer. You know, you want a vacation at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we realized we were solving a real pain point. Um, and I think the future of business is the genesis of those two pieces, like being able to solve a social problem um, so that you're doing good in the world and addressing a critical pain point so you can achieve the sustainability that you want. Well, I'm sure that, you know, when you're, raising money and when you're working with high net worth individuals and organizations, they want to hear report outs and they want to hear success stories. So what what leads to those success stories? How do you inspire the kids and make it feel fun? And what are some of the anecdotes or stories you want to share with us from, from kids in the program? Absolutely. I mean, I wish I could tell you there was some magic to it. Um, I think moving towards technology as a replacement for education is probably not going to work. Um, there are models out there already that are falling apart. I think technology has the ability to make learning more efficient and effective, um, but so much of it is relationships. And I see this because in our first summer, we were spending about $200 a kid. Like those are all of our expenses. We had volunteers and everything, mm-hmm. uh, but the programs weren't overly glamorous. You know, my friends who I went to college with, their families were spending 2000 to $10,000 just a summer to send them to camp. And the kids at the end of the summer were saying, Kareem, this is the most meaningful or the best like summer I've ever had in my life. 
And I realized in that moment they had nothing else to compare it to, but really what they were talking about was that the relationships and the friendships they had an opportunity to build in a non-high-stakes environment. Right. Um, and that's really what summer allows you to do. The stakes are really high during the school year with all the tests and the accountability on everyone. Um, and over the summer, you don't have that same pressure. And so kids can be kids, learn, and simultaneously have fun. Um, so, so much of it is the relationships that they have there. And then my favorite stories are from a lot of our like fellows. We've had fellows now go on and win Fulbright scholarships. We've had some go on to like Harvard Law School. Um, many of them have decided to teach in the schools that we're teaching in. Yeah. We've had mentors now. I think two of our mentors this year, like who I'm still in touch with, one's graduating from Brown. The other one's graduating from Cornell. Both of them were the same year in my high school. And like in my high school, it's unheard of to have kids go to Ivy League schools, um, let alone two in the same class. Um, one of our, our scholars actually was in eighth grade maybe a few years ago. And now this year was the valedictorian at my high school. Um, and so it's been awesome to like watch the journeys and the progressions of kids. Um, but also just like summer to summer, watching how a kid gets a job and that sort of changes their perspective on life and like what's possible for them and renews that sense of hope that they needed to have. Well, it's a really inspiring story. And, and Kareem, one thing I want to ask you is if you look back at the accident involved in your life, what would you point to as one of the most uh, as one of the biggest accidents um, that helped you? I sort of hinted at this a little bit earlier, but I think this financial incentive program that Bill Ackman funded, it was called Rewarding Achievement, and it paid kids to pass AP exams. And I say that because I also talked a little bit about the perspective that we sort of have when we're thinking about the environment that we're growing up in. And when you're growing up in poverty, you're thinking short term. Um, College is this long term investment. And for the first time, someone tied this like monetary incentive to doing well in school. And it was very tangible and concrete, right? If you got a five on this exam, I'd give you $1,000 at the end of the school year, which is only 10 months away. Right. And so I started to think about education, at least at that time, from this like closer perspective. And I did well, which then set me up for success in college. Um, and I met my first like real role model through that program as well. The guy's name was Eddie Rodriguez. He was the executive director of the program at the time. And it was the first time I had seen a person of color, um, dressed up in a suit and like successful and cool. And someone I felt like I wanted to emulate and be like, and he was at these Saturday workshops that I would go to. And I would sit in the classrooms, just like hoping he'd come into the room and give me a head nod. And (laughs) Eddie had gone to Columbia for undergrad and did law school at NYU. And so this was the first time I had seen someone who was saying, you know, education is your way out. And it became a lot more tangible for me. And I remember going up to Eddie and saying, listen, like, thank you so much. You know, if there's anything I can do for you, like, please let me know. Right, right. And he, and he looked at me and laughed, you know, like here was this poor inner city kid and he was a former, like successful corporate lawyer. And he was like, there's nothing you could do for me. Just pay it forward. (laughs) And um, any plans, Kareem, on expanding and and taking this model and and putting it up in another city right now? What are are the future plans? Yeah, I mean, we're hoping to be in two new cities in the next five years. Which one? There's so much work for us to do in New York City. I mean, we're looking at Newark, we're looking at D.C., but we haven't started. Like, we've had conversations in Providence, um, but I think we're still a little bit away from going to another city together. Well, it's incredible. And, uh, yes. and Kareem, you um, – I mean I know we just got you out of class right now and that you have three books due at the end of the year. Uh, what else are you doing? Any other triathlons, anything going on or just kind of laying low? 
I mean, I'm, I'm trying to keep my head down this year, <laughs> make sure that like we get the results that we want across the board. And I think the my hands are sort of full with the books that I'm trying to get out there. And hopefully they'll be uh, reader friendly for my fourth grade self. Three different books. What are the books about? So I'm writing one called, well, the titles aren't final yet, but one is called Breaking Through. Um, and it's more so on the lessons I've learned up until 25, oh. getting through the education system. So sort of the lessons that I think were most important. And that's a memoir um, of sorts. Yeah. And it, it's target. It's meant to be targeted at middle school and high school kids. Okay. Um, the second one I'm, I'm writing is on purpose and like finding purpose and really the three questions that I used in like in my life and that I reflected on my senior year of college um, that helped me live a life of purpose and targeted more so at like millennials, anyone who's trying to like switch careers or think more right. about living a, a life of intention. Um, and then the third one I'm calling reasons for hope. So I think there's all these things out there in the media that give you reasons to think that our public education system is failing and there isn't a anything out there and i want a book filled with reasons um to like show that there is still hope and that there are people who are still working out there and i think we just need to shift away from this like silver bullet mentality or that change is going to happen in two years or three years um but if we take this like longer term view on how do we create sustainable change over 40 or 50 years and what does that impact look like um then i I think we'll actually achieve the the results that we want to see i'm sure your family is very proud Kareem and uh, and working titles breaking through purpose hope we will be looking for those three books at the end of the year and thanks, um, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us no thank you all I appreciate it that's it for this episode of Forbes under 30 I hope you enjoyed it if you want to reach out to us with a comment or question please do so at under 30 that's the number 30 at podcast one.com It's Heather Dubrow. Come join me for Heather Dubrow's World exclusively on Podcast One. We have so many fun conversations and great guests. Recently, Corinne Olympios from The Bachelor was here. Suzanne Summers, Matt Eisman, Tamara Judge, my buddy, was here. All kinds of really fun. Randy Jackson, Kellen Lutz. I didn't let him bite me. Join me every Friday on PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, and subscribe to Apple Podcasts. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. 
One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.